and welcome to the 37th edition of the Traveling Two Radio Show. I'm your host, Friedel. In this show, we're talking to Rick Gunn. He spent three years going around the world by bike, a journey that changed his life. And we're telling you about some exciting things we've got coming up on Traveling2.com. a beautiful time of year and after a very harsh winter the weather is finally enough to get out on our bikes every day it's even nice enough for me to sit out on the balcony and do this podcast and for us it's also a time to launch some new projects which is why this podcast has fallen a little bit behind schedule What's been keeping us busy? Well, we've been working hard to design a free ebook on the basics of bike touring. We've put lots of practical information in it, like how to pick out a route and whether panniers are better than trailers, and we filled it with inspiring quotes and photos from people in the bike touring community. I'm just putting the finishing touches on it now, and I think it looks really good, and I hope you enjoy it as well. The book should be ready to download in the coming days, and as I said, it'll be available to download for free, so you don't have to pay for it. The only thing we're going to ask is that you sign up to the other new thing we've been working on, which is a newsletter. Every month we're planning to send you the very best of what's appeared on Traveling2.com, and we'll also put in some exclusive bike touring tips that won't appear on the blog. So that's what this spring is bringing from the Traveling2, but spring is also the time of year when a lot of you will be heading out on big bike adventures of your own. Already I'm noticing all kinds of journals online from people sitting out across countries, continents, on big world adventures even. And it was about this time in 2005 that Rick Gunn was getting ready for his trip, a three-year journey around the world. We first found Rick online a couple of years ago when we were really taken by his stunning photography and his heart-filled journals. Every time we went into an internet cafe, we'd eagerly download his latest journals, save the writing on our computer, and then we'd spend the next night devouring it in our tent. Now Rick's back home in California, and he's taken his bike touring experience and turned it into a 90-minute presentation called Soul Cycler that he gives to audiences all over America. He's inspiring people to see the world through new eyes. Recently, I had the chance to talk to Rick and find out more about his trip. My name is Rick Gunn, and I left from the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco July 1, 2005. And from that point forward, I cycled across the United States and then circumnavigated Europe after that during the winter, cycled from Turkey, and then had to fly over Iran into Uzbekistan, across Uzbekistan, across Kyrgyzstan, into China, up and over Tibet, into Nepal, then through India, Bangladesh, circumnavigated Southeast Asia, hopping by plane into some of the places like Borneo, and then back to the peninsula, down through Malaysia. Uh, Indonesia, and then rode from Darwin to Melbourne, Australia, and then finished out in Tasmania, New Zealand, with a final leg coming back through uh, from Vancouver, British Columbia, all the way back to the Golden Gate Bridge. That's an absolutely huge trip. It's the kind of trip that 
people maybe dream about for many years? Was it something that had been in your head for quite a long time or, or something that you decided on relatively shortly before you left? Yeah, so it had been in my head for quite some time and really the origins of the story are quite lengthy and layers. It came about through an unlikely source and a series of painful events in my life. As I grew up, you know, I, I roll my memory back as far as I can to my upbringing and remember, you know, peeling the training wheels off my first purple Schwinn Stingray. This seems somewhat irrelevant to a trip around the world, but it isn't really because what happened at that point in time, just after that point in time, was I learned to ride for the first time and I used that bicycle as a, as a mechanism of coping. My parents' fights and their crumbling marriage and the bicycle was something that I could get on and for that moment, all of that seemed to dissolve. And so from that point forward, I started using the bicycle as a chance to get out and be a child again and go back out into these open wildlands and visit further and further into these areas that were foreign to me and each time I'd have a new subset of adventures and if you roll roll everything backwards and you look at this journey those were the first seeds of this because there was something in in the bicycle something in that you know small metal machine of metal and rubber you know that, that brought me back to myself and it freed me if you roll the clock ahead 23 years later uh, i remember having problems with relationships i was having problems with all kinds of things because i hadn't dealt with my mother's death that had happened in the midst of the divorce during that time of my childhood i hadn't dealt with it and so i had to go and deal with it and what i tell people when they ask me what is the reason why you went here is i had a dream to do this trip around the world, but mostly I had to clear away all the entanglements that were keeping me from that. So I had to go and speak with someone, and I had to go and work through and talk to them about my troubles. And after a few years of, of speaking with this person, I was able to disentangle myself from those things and then focus on what my dream was, and that was to ride a bicycle around the world. And one of the things I find really amazing about your trip is that you didn't actually have a lot of money saved up. In fact, you say that you, you didn't have enough and you actually cashed out your retirement fund and <laughs> and took out a loan. I mean, that took some real guts to do that. That Was that scary at the time to take out all that money? Absolutely. I, I say to everybody that the hardest part of the 26,000-mile journey was the first 25 yards out of my driveway. Rolling back to my parents' divorce, there were spats over money and there was a the, all of the family got involved, you know, aunt, aunts and uncles and you know, grandparents, and I learned to devalue money. For me, I realized at that point in time that money wasn't important, so I gutted money from my life. And then when it came time to realize my dreams some years later, I realized that I had to have money to realize that dream. And so I had to make it happen, and, and I did. I sacrificed. I knew that I would have to sacrifice for this dream, so I pulled out my 401K and every bit of money that I had. And, uh, yeah, it was very, very difficult. The, the two years of planning beforehand was the stuff of nervous breakdowns, and I came very close to that. So what do you remember about the first week on the road? Can you tell us a little bit about where you went and maybe one or two experiences that stand out from that time? Yeah, absolutely. I can remember the first thing I had to do was cycle from – I've cycled all my life you know, for 20 years before that and done all these cycling trips and a lot of cycling tours, to be honest with you. But I had to ride a very basic ride from uh, San Francisco, California, to my house in the Sierra Nevada at Lake Tahoe, and it kicked my butt. <laughs> it was, we, I had to ride across, riding from the Golden Gate Bridge, at, I got there at 5.30 in the morning. San Francisco can be an amazingly cold place in the middle of summer, 
And so we rolled off the Golden Gate Bridge, me and a friend. And by the time, you know, I think it was really, really cold. I mean, wet kind of cold and damp foggy. But by the time we got to the inland areas of Sacramento and the Sacramento Valley, which is not far away, it was up to 100 degrees just a couple hours later. And so from that point, you climb, you know, 6,000 feet or 2,000 meters up to, to my home in Lake Tahoe. And it was brutal. I mean, I felt like I was fit. I was fit, but just that that first five days of transition, really, like I said, it really kicked my butt. So. <laughs> <laughs> and did you ever think at the end of the first week, okay, this is this is stupid. I'm going back home now. No, I never felt that way. Even though I had a lot of fear at that point in time about the transition itself, those there was never a period in that very front end where of the trip where I said, no, it's. It's not going to happen. I I felt like this is it. Bring it on. What do we have? Unload it. And so I, I moved my way from the Sierra Nevada and then rode across Death Valley uh, at 117 degrees. And I did most of that riding at night. And it was spectacular. I mean, it's hard to describe what it's like to ride across Death Valley in July anyways. I mean, I, I, something, I don't know what a 117 degrees transfers to. And, Celsius, but I think it's close to 40. At night, I had a guy following me in a car because I was a little bit uncertain about what would happen at that point in time. So he followed me for 150 miles across Death Valley uh, at night, and I, I felt like a vampire. It was really weird. I'd sleep during the day and then come out at night and ride. Why did you choose to go through Death Valley? It always amazes me when people choose these very extreme experiences. For example, Death Valley in summer or Tibet in winter, as some people do. I mean, there must have been an easier route or at least a slightly cooler route that you could have chosen. So why did you zero in on that one? That's an easy question to answer. You know, it's funny. Uh, I was at an assignment for my newspaper before I left on the journey. I told the guy, well, I'm leaving in July. He was a mathematician, very logical man. And he said to me, that's impossible. You can't ride across that. And I thought, I love it when people tell me that that's impossible. <laughs> it was great. I said, well, then that means i got to go do it. And Death Valley is amazing. There are two huge climbs there. The highest mountain in the continental United States lies just outside of Death Valley, Mount Whitney. What people don't realize about Death Valley, there's an amazing amount of wildlife, especially at night. You've got this parade of animals and creatures and spiders and scorpions and uh, kangaroo rats that parade across the road. And it's really ethereal to ride that thing. And as you continued on your trip and it got further and further into it, you must have had a rhythm that developed. What was a typical day like for you on the road? Well, across the United States, they are long days. That's what I remember succinctly about riding across the United States, is that you have to cover a fair amount of ground in a day. So the days were long. And I remember that for sure. I would get up as early as I can. It was during the summer. And all across the Midwest and the Rockies and all of those kinds of places, they were spectacularly long days. You know, 70, 80, 100 miles was pretty regular. And so uh, I remember I had to work very hard at that point in time. And I think it was fantastic because it was great seasoning to start me for the Why did it have to be a long day? Were you on a, a time budget in terms of you had to get a flight at the other end? or? Yeah, I think I, ha I had had that pretty much mapped out as far as getting across the states. And the other thing was is that I didn't draw a direct line. I went to all my favorite spots. So I went from San Francisco to Tahoe down to Vegas where I had a friend and then up to Zion and Bryce National Park and then into Telluride, Colorado and then up to Crested Butte. I just, I wanted to cycle to all my favorite places. So there, 
you know, you can ride the southern tier in two months if you want to. If you, it's pretty much a straight line. But I was really more in it for the soul aspect, really. I mean, I didn't, I didn't figure I was going to ride this again soon. So I wanted to hit all my favorite spots, and I did. And I want to talk about a few of the other places that you cycle, because obviously the United States was only one part of your journey. Give us one spot that really stood out in your mind. Well, you know, I cycled through Europe after that and then moved my way into uh, Central Asia, through Central Asia, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, then into Tibet. And, you know, the entire corridor, where the, the journey really, I feel like, switched on in a certain sense for me was moving into these places along the Silk Road and then da- up and over the Tibetan Plateau and then down into Nepal, India, and Bangladesh into Southeast Asia. This is the area where there are, uh, for one, very electric culturally. The landscape is amazing. And um, all of a sudden, a lot of global issues start to come up for me, and especially as a journalist, really keeping my eyes open and keeping my ears open and speaking with people. So this whole area here, from starting from Central Asia in over Tibet and then into Southeast Asia, the whole journey shifted and transformed into something completely different. We had a very similar experience. I think as long as you're in North America and Europe, at least for from our perspective, it's a very familiar world. You kind of know how everything works, but at some point you cross that invisible line, don't you? And it all becomes a little stranger and you have to really work to understand what's going on around you. Did you have that experience or... Absolutely. Um, I think that uh, also, too, I'm very, I'm a, I feel like I'm a very sensitive person. And so seeing these images of oppression and poverty and disease, you know, deep poverty, not just the kind of poverty that is keeping up with one's neighbors, but the kind of poverty that kills people, I was changed fundamentally. I, mean, I became a changed man. And I, I began, the more I saw, the more I started to question, and the more I questioned, the deeper I got into these situations and, until I got to a point where I realized that uh, deep inside of me, uh, I need to take action. However small it is, I needed to take some action. I think that's maybe one of the things about bicycle touring compared to, for example, backpacking, is that you do have that very close connection with people. You really see things in a much more detailed way, perhaps, because you're going through smaller towns where there aren't a lot of tourists, and, and so you really see people who are struggling to to get along. How, how did you actually deal with that on a day-to-day basis? Because sometimes it can be quite disturbing, or it's hard to know how to react. You know, Do you pull some money out of your wallet, or what do you do in those situations? Well, that's an interesting question. What, um, for me, after a while, I, I think I hit the overwhelm. I mean, seeing so much and dealing with so much. I mean, I really immersed myself in it. I didn't turn away from it. As you said, uh, you are immersed in it when you're on a bicycle. And when you see these things, you know, the death and uh, disease and poverty, um, some people would just, like I've heard of people getting to Bangladesh and saying, nope, this isn't for me, and getting on a plane and going, just as soon as they get there. You know, I I had kind of the opposite effect, like, okay, I need to talk to somebody, and I need to get involved. And I think that, for me, psychologically, i got to tell you honestly, there, there were certain times on this journey where I went absolutely crazy. Vietnam, East Timor, and places like that. And I was so upset with the Iraq war back home, you know, the actions of... Uh, George Bush in America, that I really lost. I feel like I really lost my mind. I was so jaded and disenchanted with that whole system. But to answer your question in a roundabout way, I had it was the taking of the action that really 
helped me to come back full circle and to rebalance myself. Um, that's, that's what it took for me to rebalance, was to write about it in my journals, to take photographs of it, and then also to speak with people and try and find an answer and to volunteer. Many people out there may be thinking as well, you know, when you're going through areas that are so poor, is it safe? I mean, did you ever feel when you were riding through a particularly poor area that you were threatened in any way or were you always welcomed? What was the reaction from the local people like? Because you are coming through on this bicycle with all your things and it's very obvious and conspicuous and... Actually, it's funny. I, people ask me this question in my shows all the time, and I say to them, the most dangerous place that I visited um, on my journey around the planet was Baltimore. <laughs> what was so bad about Baltimore? <laughs> I had a guy threaten me physically. I was riding through, the, in the east coast of the United States, there are a lot of ghettos that ring some of the major cities, like Philadelphia and Baltimore and Washington, D.C. You know, just outside of Washington, D.C., you have some of the gnarliest neighborhoods you could ever imagine and and in all of those neighborhoods I was threatened and uh, I maybe I wasn't paying attention as much but in, in the developing world no I mean in East Timor I had some little bit of jitters about the fact that these people could start fighting again but that was really the only place where I was worried about that I went through a lot of impoverished places and to be honest with you in most of those places I was welcomed and I felt very comfortable and I, I didn't feel threat, and I didn't feel like I was going to be hurt. In fact, I was welcomed, and uh, that was very eye-opening for me, too. Who was a very memorable person that you met? Is there one family or one encounter that sticks out in your mind? Well, besides Maria Cozine, the one that was riding her bike from Slovenia to uh, Beijing and back, I met one gentleman that is extremely memorable. His name is Mohammed Tajiran, and she's from uh, Mashhad, Iran. And I learned of him while trying to get into Iran, trying to get a visa. I learned of him and his quest to cycle around the world as he has been doing. I contacted Muhammad and just wished him well on his journey. And he asked where I was. And so I told him I was in Thailand. He said he was in northern Malaysia. He said, why don't we meet? So we met and we decided to do a ride together for a couple of weeks, a symbolic ride between the two of us and do a ride for peace between America and Iran, and then symbolically plant a tree at the end. I think I learned more from that man on this journey than uh, I can even describe here in the amount of time that we have. Uh, a man who operates fr from a purpose-driven journey. I was really impressed by that, and he, the way that he opened his heart to me changed my life. I, just a, a brilliant man. Were there any families or anything that took you in along the way? I know that um, you know what happened to us quite a lot. I don't know if it happened to you, but very often you'd be cycling along and you'd just meet someone and they'd say, oh, come home for the night, or did you have that experience? Absolutely. I had it all the time. I mean, I had, I can remember, I can remember being in Indonesia and uh, having 21 flats in a row. I couldn't figure out what was causing flats. And I remember flipping out in a rice field someplace, and the farmers were actually scattering out of the rice field because they heard me yelling and they were scared of me. But I had, gotten, I had to go a certain amount of miles. When you only have a two-month uh, visa for, uh, for Indonesia. So you have to move fairly quickly through Indonesia to get across all the islands. And I was extremely frustrated, and I was going to ride another 50 kilometers into the dark. And I came into a small village, and the gentleman behind the counter realized that what I was saying to him, he didn't speak very good English, was that I was going to continue cycling from his village for another 50K that night. It was already dark. And he said, no, 
I'm sorry, but please wait here a minute. And he, he ran, and then he came back, and when he came back, he said, come with me, and he he kind of drug me through these different alleyways into a house where this Muslim family was waiting with an extra room, and they said, God, and they said, please, welcome, you know, stay here, and you know, I can remember getting into this Spartan room where there's one bed, and then above the bed, there was a sign on the wall. There was the Arabic sign that says, God is great. And I was just really overtaken by that. But I, I, to be honest with you, I've had that experience over and over again through the journey, people taking me in all throughout the entire journey. So that's just one story and a very large number of stories of people welcoming. I seem to remember from your travels through Australia that you had a few Australians who would uh, typically offer you beer when you rolled into the campsite at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like to say that the Aussies are not happy unless you have a, a beer in your hand and a smile on your face. So if you, if you don't have one, they'll put it there. <laughs> and so, yeah, they were... The Australians, I think, are the greatest. They are really one of my favorite people on the planet. I, they are just really gregarious and vivacious. And, and a small story there, when I was when I was in Australia, I found a wallet. I was down. I wasn't supposed to stay out for three years. I was only supposed to be out for two. So I was on you know financial vapors at the end of this journey. And Australia came at the end. And I had actually pulled to the side of the road and found a wallet with 600 Canadian. And that, at that point, was the only time in history that it, the Canadian dollar was worth more than the American dollar. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had no money. I was living on $5 a day. and But still, I took that wallet and I turned it in and the, the gentleman who lost it got the money back. And I was staying with an Australian family who had invited me in at that time. And as a note on Australians, he realized in front of his children that I had given them quite a lesson. Well, as I left, I was in tears because I didn't have enough to go to Tasmania. I really wanted to go to Tasmania. And as I was riding away that afternoon, you know, like I said, I was in tears. I looked into my bike bags, and he had slipped in a card, and I opened the card, and in it was $300, Australian dollars. Wow. So it was really touching for me, you know, the Australians, and I felt that all across Australia. They, yeah, they're fantastic people. We we really love that country. I'd love to go back and, and do another tour there. <laughs> You're just making me nostalgic now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to turn to the gear side a little bit as well, because it, it strikes me that you had a few problems with your bicycles. I don't know if I've read too many other journals of round-the-world cyclists where the person has gone through, was it three or four bicycles that you went through on yeah, your trip? Three I went through three bicycles, yes. Yeah. Now, did you pick exceptionally cheap bicycles, or were you just tough on them, or what happened there? Well, I think the, all of the above. The first bicycle that I had had had, had some design flaws, so um, there was a problem there. So that was an instantaneous thing. And, you know, the bike builder's fantastic. He's, he's a great bike builder, but he hadn't had much, much experience in the touring realm. But um, he had all of his mountain bikes. I had used one of his cross bikes just after that. He'd shipped me one. And... So that worked just fine. There was no issue with it. But the touring bike had had some flaws. So then I, I moved my way into Turkey. From Turkey, I had had a mountain bike flown to me there because I, did, I was on a 700C bike around Europe and America. And then I took that over the over Tibet and it made it all the way through Indonesia and everything. And then it broke when I got to Vancouver. It was really I'd gone all, over all these mountains and all these rough roads. And then I get to Vancouver on the last leg of my journey after taking this one particular mountain bike, 15 
thousand miles, and I hit a little bump on this really pedestrian road in downtown Vancouver, and then suddenly the whole back of the frame just snapped at the rear triangle. Mm. I just laughed. I had to laugh. I mean, I thought, wow, after all those miles, you know. So what did you do? I went to a muffler shop and had it, I had it welded for twenty bucks at a welder um, at a muffler shop, and it's funny because the guy the guy looked at me and I said, well, do you think this is going to make it the last thousand miles down to the Golden Gate Bridge from here? And his words were zen. He said, well, it either will or it won't. <laughs> <laughs> It's just going to be what it's going to be, huh? <laughs> That's exactly. I think that those were Zen words for the entire trip. It either will or it won't. So, I also on the same bike. The other brakes were on the islet, so on the rack pilots. I was carrying a lot of camera gear and, and computer gear. I was writing articles for the newspaper and shooting tons, fifty-two thousand photographs. So I had tons of weight on the bike. So when I was in Tibet, those islets snapped off, and. I, if it wasn't for a piece of wire laying on the ro- inside the road, I would have had to catch a, a ride out of there. It was really, you know, intense for that period of time. And then once I got those eyelets welded again, because the other side broke as well, I kept the wire wrapped around the thing the whole time, the entire journey. Huh. When you look back on it, do you think you were carrying too many things? Is there anything that you would cut out, or did you genuinely use it and feel like you needed all of it? I used every single item and wore wore everything out. As, uh, you know, really wore all you know, five iPods, five seats, five sets of t- um, shoes. I had seven cycle computers. You know, I went through equipment. Tw- you know, fifteen sets of tires. Uh, we're talking masses of, of equipment. I blew through stuff, and I am very hard on everything. I wonder why you why you are so hard on it, and other people seem to have an easier time of it. Do you have any idea why you wore so so much stuff out? I think I'm just I've got like a magic touch. The, the things that I touch just seem to nuke on me. You know, they just melt computers, and I'm just really hard. I mean, I'm I don't weigh a lot, but I'm 190 pounds. And like I said, 100 pounds of gear, that, that puts a lot of weight on the bike. But also with all the other things, too, I'm just really, I don't know how to explain it other than I'm really, I have a tendency to wear things out. And <laughs> I like to use them to their fullest extent. So it's interesting. Aside from the problems with your bicycles and, and the eyelets, did you have any other major difficulties on the trip? Yes, I did. When I crossed Central Asia from Europe, I'd left a friend in Switzerland, a guy by the name of Alex. He had kind of made a running bet that I wouldn't be able to cycle across Central Asia into China, where I'd met him in China some years earlier in a place called Kashgar. And, uh, as I got to Kashgar, I was so happy. I got on the phone and I called him and I had a money belt. It had his number on it. So I set it down on the counter. I made the call from Kashgar. I was so excited. I was so excited at that point in time. I left my money belt sitting on the top of the hotel counter. I walked away for a few minutes and then came back and it was gone. And it was filled with $2,600 and uh, my passport. Yeah, and so from that point forward, I survived on the good graces of other people. I mean, this is really amazing, but at that point in time, I had to fly to, I had to fly to Hong Kong. I was riding with a gentleman by the name of Christoph Fladum. He was on a, a German gentleman on a recumbent bicycle. And his parents, he, I didn't even have a passport so I could get money. And there's no uh, Western Union or no kind of money shipping in Kashgar. Through the kindness of his parents, who didn't even know me, they sent me enough money to get a plane ticket to go and get a new passport in Hong Kong. I, and by the time I flew back and and started to head across Tibet, my readership, the people that were reading my articles in the newspaper and my web group of people, had replaced all that money. 
they really wanted to see me realize my dream of cycling around the world. So I really felt humbled by that. I really felt empowered by that. Wow, that's just fantastic. That's another testament to the kindness of people, really, isn't it? Absolutely, and I do believe in that. I do believe of the kindness and in the kindness of people. And it taught me to to encourage my own kindness and begin to really try and help others. My my focus at that point in time became about helping others and service to others. So, and after going through three years of travel and seeing and experiencing all the things that you did, it must have been quite an emotional moment then to come back to North America and know that your trip was almost done. Yes, absolutely. Um, it was really almost as hard as, as leaving, and I think I'm still re-aggregating right now. It's like kind of like a ball of string that you have to unwind and look at, and I may be unwinding that for the rest of my life. You know, so many experiences for me. I, I can remember a perfect example of coming back was when I left on this journey. There was a gentleman that was sitting in his chair as I left. As I drove by his house, I looked a neighbor inside his house watching TV in a corner of the room. And after three years and after all these mind-blowing experiences, I came back down my street and he was sitting in the exact same chair watching the exact same TV. You know, I hear I'd have all these earth-moving, life-shifting experiences and then it's like, how do I convey these things to these people where nothing, every day has been the same for them pretty much. And that was a real struggle for me. I, I, I went through a lot of tumultuous emotions trying to deal with that and come out the other end of it. And even to this day, it's still a bit difficult for me. I couldn't just drop right back into society. So, Would you do it again? Well, that's a big question I get all the time. Um, right now, I was apart from friends and family for a long time, and that can get very lonely. And so it's very nice to be re-immersed in my friends and family. And so for now, I'm very happy to do what I'm doing now, but I feel like the road is calling me also. So I, I see myself doing smaller trips, three months, six months, um, and doing purpose-driven trips. You know, definitely if I'm riding here, I'll try to get together with Muhammad and do a, a trip for peace or to do some kind of uh, aid work, something to that effect. Rick Gunn. And if you want to read more about Rick's shows and his journey, check out his website, rickgunphotography.com. As always, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Well, that's it for another Traveling 2 podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to keep watching the site in the coming days for our new ebook. In the meantime, we hope you get out on your bike and enjoy some wonderful bike tours wherever you are in the world. Music.